please open up your Bibles to Colossians 4, uh, verses 2 through 6, and follow along as I read. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us also, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Yet let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, we're continuing to press through Colossians. This will be my last sermon in Colossians, and uh, Andrew Babb will be closing it out for us next week. And it's actually a really good section of Scripture that we're finishing here, and next week's is too. I'm really excited about that, Andrew, and I've been looking at that passage and talking about it. And, and, uh, but before we get there, we need to go through these. And I wanted to start today and just mention right off the top that there are a few books on prayer that have impacted my life greatly over the years. And some of them I'm going to reference and paraphrase today, and in some cases directly quote. And over the years, I've tried to develop a deeper understanding of prayer and how to have effectual prayers. And for me, the best way I have found is I find it helpful to study people who have lived intimately with God. Now, one of the books, some of the books, these are the books. I'm not asking that you go buy the books. I'm just giving you these as a reference so that if I fail to reference one correctly, uh, I've covered my bases. A Call to Prayer by J.C. Ryle. It's a small booklet, about 40 or 50 pages. It's just like we've been studying in the men's group. I read it at least once a year. Release the Power of Prayer by George Mueller. It's an incredibly powerful book. And uh, I, uh, it's about George Mueller, and I have more about that a little bit later. A Simple Way to Pray by Archie Parrish. The forward is by R.C. Sproul. It is adapted from Luther, Martin Luther's, A Way to Pray, which was written several hundred years, about 400 years ago. And um, another book is The Hidden Life of Prayer by David McIntyre. And then a recent one in 2009, I believe it is, is called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's a very practical, very pertinent, very current book. Every one of these books has nuggets of wisdom, promptings, encouragements, as well as admonishments that properly kind of target to urge one towards communion with God. And all of that being said, with all the books about prayer, and all the books with about methods of prayer, nothing can take the place of actually praying. I have this quote I don't know who to reference it to. I've used it before. I know I have it, but I couldn't find the reference. But there's a quote that says, the way to do a thing is to do it. Theodore Roosevelt is attributed as saying, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. To not pray is not an option given in Scripture for those who believe. 
J.C. Ryle in a call to prayer says, prayer is to a believer's faith as breathing is to the physical life. And a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. Prayer is to be a characteristic of the godly. Let's look at a few verses to set our backdrop before we get into the text for today. In Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 7, is a parable about a praying widow and the persistence that she had in petitioning a judge. At the end, Jesus is interpreting the parable in verse 7, and he says, And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Romans 8, 5 through 4, or 8, 14 through 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 1 Peter 1, 17. And if you call on him as Father. You see all these references of calling on God. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Psalms 14.4 is an example where not calling on the name of the Lord is associated with the wicked or the fool. That passage of Scripture reads, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? I don't want to be associated with that. Now let's turn our attention to the text in Colossians. And I think it's appropriate to remind ourselves that Paul has heard of the Colossians' faith. In chapter 1, he spoke of the word had come to them and it was bearing fruit and increasing. Paul exampled devoted prayer for them that they would be filled with wisdom and understanding so as to have a walk pleasing to the Lord, one that bore fruit. Paul then established the preeminence of Christ as the head of all things, the head of creation and the church. Paul has an ongoing struggle for the church that she would not be led astray, deluded with plausible arguments or taken captive by empty philosophy according to human tradition and elemental spirits of the world. He spoke to those who were raised to new life in Christ. He warned against false teachers trying to disqualify with hurdles from the old covenant or in some, some cases carried in from pagan rituals of the day. Anything that were hurdles or hindrances to Christ and his complete sufficiency. And in chapter 3 in the section we have been in for several weeks now, those who have been raised with Christ are new creatures and should live differently. Our minds should be on the things above and our lives should be characteristically and distinctly characterized by putting to death earthliness, putting off sin. And he gave us a list of examples back in chapter 3 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, Paul also instructs that our lives should be distinctly characterized by what we're putting on. And he gives us a list in 12 through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love that binds everything together. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. And here in verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This link in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name, we're going to see this linked forward about speech and action in our text today. The obvious carryover that we studied together last week is that this new creational living, we as individuals each pursue, then men and women covenant together in marriage to form husbands and wives, then to have children and to establish homes and households, families. These Christian households then are distinct and unique in the order of the home, the structure of the home, and the entire interaction within the home. And the home with Christ is the headship, the man submitting to Christ and loving his, his wife as Christ loved the church, sacrificially and without harshness, living with them in an understanding way, cherishing them, and upholding God's word as central, creates a willingness and a desire for the woman to lovingly honor Christ by placing herself under her husband. And she respects her husband, and they together strive to bring up their children in the Lord, the knowledge of him and his word, providing appropriate training and instruction and discipline that is not intended or that results in exasperation or provocation but leads to obedience and joy in knowing that they are obeying and pleasing God and they honor their parents. This is to carry over into the household and the entire operation of the home. And now Paul continues his writing to the Colossian believer and extending the instructions to the importance of prayer and the impact of our walk and our speech and what its effect is to have on the non-believer, those outside the family of faith. We see here from Paul some continued instructions. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I believe that the New American Standard is quite helpful here. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The idea of being devoted to something or steadfast or resolved clearly establishes the importance of it. The verses we read at the beginning from our Lord in the Gospels make the importance of it clear. With it being so clear, this commandment to pray, I wonder, in all of my years, and maybe I'm alone in this, I'm not sure, 
But I've been in tons of Bible studies. I've been in all kinds of small groups. And not one time can I ever recall someone saying, man, I've just had too much time to pray lately. I've had many times where people tell me they've had a season of prayer, a season of fellowship with the Lord, times that are rich and edifying. But in my own life, what I've experienced is that there's this ongoing undercurrent, or better, maybe even a more true description, is this like headwind that tends to hinder prayer and try to blow us off course. The command to be watchful and pray is associated also with Matthew 26, 41 in the garden where Jesus asked them to watch and pray that they might not fall into temptation. Yet, they fell asleep. The contextual use of the word here for alert is not the same as the use in various places in Scripture where we are to be alert on the second coming of Christ. This is a form of alertness that is really grounded around to be alert and on guard against temptation or distraction. Maybe even the allurement of the false teaching because Paul has just recently covered that. But it's also an alertness to be alert and intentional and aware of the needs that our brothers and sisters in the faith may may have. The thankfulness that's mentioned here, there are several linkages. Look back briefly at 317. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. And back in chapter 1, We see thankfulness and continual prayers example by Paul. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, we always thank God when we pray for you. And in 9, Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then in 12, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. At the beginning of Colossians, Paul leads with some examples here of his own model of devotion and continued steadfastness in prayer and the thankfulness that flows through that prayer. As we understand the simple beauty that we, those who believe and are trusting in Christ, can enter into the very presence of God, through Christ, should this not cause us to be thankful? As we see prayers answered, it should result in thankfulness. And as we see fruit in our lives and in the lives of those around us, we should be thankful. The start of verse 3 implies that as the Colossians are praying for themselves, They are also to pray for Paul. So the text, let's look real quick. Paul leads in verse 3, at the same time. When you look at at the same time, that implies that they're praying for themselves, right? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, comma, pray also for us. So before we move on to this next section about the specific ask from Paul, I think there's some applications. First and foremost, Paul's instruction to continue steadfastly or be devoted are action words which imply that it just doesn't happen on its own. There are all kinds of forces at play that can keep us from our quiet time with the Lord. 
One is our own personal sin. If we are living in sin, it can cause dullness, a quenched spirit, can hinder our prayers. This can be manifest in many ways, but it could even be the sin of laziness, procrastination, putting off, busyness. How many times do you hear someone today, whenever you talk and you greet one another, what's going, how are you doing? Well, I'm busy. Have you, has anybody ever talked about how busy they are today? Well, I'm busy. Man, I'm really busy. There's another book on my shelf that I, it's called Too Busy Not to Pray. In a simple way to pray, as I mentioned earlier, it details that the historical records show that Luther prayed about four hours per day. Now, Luther prayed this much, not despite his busy life, but because only, he, he only saw that that was the way he, he could accomplish his great tasks. So instead of allowing the great number of tasks to squeeze out prayer, he saw the great number of tasks and it drove him to prayer. Oh, how too often I'm relinquishing myself to just quick and hurried prayers or relying on arrow prayers throughout the day without entering my closet for focused prayer, time with the Lord. In, JC, in a call to prayer, J.C. Ryle wrote, Men fall in private long before they fall in public. And in another location he wrote, Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions may be and how holy your resolutions, so long as they are fixed for tomorrow. Well, I'm going to. This evening, tomorrow, see, if that's where Satan has you, he has you outside the presence of God. Lastly, George Mueller, who I mentioned earlier, was a thief and a liar in his youth. But after turning to Christ, he provided for over 10,000 orphans without ever asking anyone for God, any, anyone other than God for their needs. George Mueller depended on prayer, but he also persisted in prayer. Now, when we enter into prayer, I have a little booklet, it's called Field Notes, I don't have it in my pocket here, I have it in my work bag, I carry it. I have uh, prayers, I have a broken out, each family member, each close family member has a, a section where I keep prayers for my, all my close family members uh, written out, prayer lists. I have my own prayers, I have prayers for each of my kids and Terry. I have a, a page devoted where I've written out extended family members. I have to have this. And so... I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sitting here saying, oh, every day I come get up, I pray from 6.30 till 9. or you know, No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is I pray, but I go back to this reference, and sometimes I, I don't have it in front of me, and I pray you know, from my memory. But I go there intentionally to think about these individuals, people that are close to me, and, and I pray over the church directory, us as a spiritual family. 
But it's important to have a structure, an approach. Some people use acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Some use praise, uh, petition, and then, uh, no, praise, thanksgiving, and then petition. Whatever it may be, it is helpful at times to have an approach with God. But it has to always start with our own willingness to get before God and to confess our sins and enter into His presence. But I want to reiterate, no amount of proper training about prayer can replace actually praying. It's more important to know God than to know all about God. Do you remember in Matthew where the people who petitioned the Lord with all of their activity in His name. It's a dire warning when He said, away from me, I never knew you. Far too often, we might find great joy and interest in learning all kinds of systematics, intricate details on eschatology. And I like those discussions too. Love them. But we must be careful to not know all about Things like evangelizing the lost and fail to ever share with the lost. Which leads us to what Paul's talking about next is a lifestyle that's impactful. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear Paul had some specific requests. He wanted the door to be opened so that the mystery of Christ could be proclaimed. This refers not only to the opportunity, but there was an expected success in this evangelism. Some verses that are contextually helpful, I think, about the door. Acts 14, 27. Paul says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Now, Paul's reference in Colossians chapter 1. Look back at 5 through 6, chapter 1, 5 through 6. Paul talks about the Word, which has come to you. So this Word, it says, Of this you have heard before in the Word of the truth, the Gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing among you. So the Word has an effectual impact of salvation. But how will people know? Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul was asking that the door, this opportunity be opened, that he could declare the mystery of Christ. And in chapter 1, look back, verse 26 and 27, this mystery we talked about then about something that was hidden for the ages. It was in the Old Testament, this was veiled. And then now it's been revealed in the New Testament, manifest in the New. 
Paul is asking for this opportunity to speak forth this truth. It says he was also, because of this mystery, in prison. We know that he spent time in prison on various occasions. But yet in Acts chapter 28, verse 30 through 31, we know because it says he lived for two years proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And while they imprisoned the man, they could not imprison God's word. It continued to be put forth by Paul. Now, look at this. Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to a door to us. And then he switches to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So Paul shifted to the first person there. So here in this text, at the same time, we've talked about that briefly, and he moves to the singular. There is this interesting consideration where he says that he should declare it as he ought. That word's an interesting word, isn't it? How I ought to do it. You ever had that? Well, I ought to go do something. What does that mean? That implies, you know, maybe you have a responsibility to do it, or maybe there's a way you should, how you should do it. And so that applies here. Um, Is it acting on the compulsion or the ethical responsibility that Paul has as an apostle? You know, as a commissioning of the apostle? You know, he was specially, you know, he was an apostle. Or is it a mandate in how, or maybe the manner in which he is to speak, like in a clear way? I don't think you have to choose either. I think both are in play. And I, I say this for the following reason. In Acts 20, 21, Paul testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in uh, verse 16 in, cha- in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul was bound not only to proclaim it clearly and fearlessly, but he was also bound to proclaim. And so I think this is a very applicable section of Scripture. And one of the first challenges I have is, are our prayers specific enough? Paul asked specifically that a door would be open, that he could proclaim the mystery of Christ. Do I feel a compulsion to share the gospel? And am I prepared to speak clearly about God and about Christ when the opportunity avails? Now, Paul now turns to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. There's a clear transition here from Paul's evangelical responsibility to the responsibility of the Colossians, their Christian witness to unbelievers. There's five previous uses of wisdom in Colossians. Four of them are on the positive, one is on the negative. In uh, verse 223 is the lone negative use where he talks about an appearance of wisdom with false teachers. But in verses 9, 28, chapter 2, 3, and 316b, it's very interesting. In chapter 128 and 23, that word wisdom is associated with revealing the mystery of Christ, as it is here. Walk in wisdom. But Paul was just talking about declaring the mystery of Christ, and then he switches to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. That's linked to the gospel. Now, 
To walk in a wise manner is to conduct oneself in such a way as to be conducive to sharing the gospel. Our walk is either opening a door to the gospel or clouding it or in the worst cases, closing it. A Christian claim without fruit leads to confusion. In the worst of cases, it is a form of godliness without power, meaning people see right through it, and it degrades the credibility to make the proclamation. Believers can so easily compromise ourselves or erode credibility if we're not careful. We cannot walk in open sin. You can't come here and act one way around your brothers and sisters and act another way at the workplace or act another way at home. You can't come in here and act like everything's okay as we walk in and we come rolling in here and things have gone like crazy this morning trying to get the kids to bed, or not get them to bed, get them out of bed and get them to church and you know, you're at each other's throat and you're coming in here and everything's going, and all the stuff we talked about about not being harsh and all this stuff is not happening. But when we pull into the parking spot out there, put it in park, all right, on our way in. Looks good. It's real. Now we talk about that in jest, but we have to be careful that the world doesn't see us. They see us really in, in reality, not legalistic, not in immorality, not with a lack of self control. They shouldn't see us living for money. Living selfishly. But at the same time, we can add credibility with a lifestyle that's characterized by an orientation around Christ. The fruits of the Spirit. A good steward of money and resources for the good of others. Lives characterized by the power of God. And dependence on God. Making the most of every opportunity. Redeeming the time. This seems somewhat straightforward, such as we are to live oriented with an expectation for opportunity to witness about Christ. First, while living and walking in wisdom, hopefully we'll be availed that opportunity. Which fits here now with the type of speech we are to possess. A speech with grace. Or that is grace-filled. Graciousness. It's a type of attractiveness. Not a superficial, shallow flattery, but a substantive authenticity. A truth that is inviting and real. Seasoned with salt is similar in that salt improves taste, but in ancient times it also preserved food. So we provide speech that does not cause rot or decay or corruption, but that builds others up and is attractive and effectual. And impactful. The Nasby renders the word answer actually respond, which implies that there would be some sort of dialogue. And 1 Peter 3.15, Andrew actually said this in his prayer, comes to our mind. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Walking in wisdom with proper speech opens the door to impact the lives of unbelievers. 
If I were to reflect on what unbelievers, this is an application question. If I were to reflect on what unbelievers see in my walk, is there anything that is detracting from the gospel or eliminating my opportunities for the gospel? So what will I do this week to cultivate a deeper prayer life? Some practical things. A quiet place, maybe. A quiet hour, quiet heart. Do you have a place where you can go in your home? Some time set aside. Doesn't have to be a full hour. Two hours is fine. Why limit yourself? A quiet heart. A structure. Sometimes as much time needs to be spent preparing the heart to pray as actually praying. How often sometimes I find it hard to settle my mind into prayer and find that it jumps around. In The Hidden Life of Prayer, page 44, McShane used to, there's three references here. McShane used to say that very much of his prayer time was spent preparing to pray. A New England Puritan writes, While I was at the Word, I saw I had a wild heart, which was as hard to stand and abide before the presence of God in ordinance as a bird before any man. I just love that analogy. You know how birds you know, are sitting out trying to have a cup of coffee or something on a patio, and the birds are here, and then they jump here, and then they flutter here, and they flutter there? Have you ever felt your heart doing that as you've tried to settle it in on prayer? You're trying to settle yourself in before God, and it seems like it, you know, your mind is, is here and here. I just, just resonated with me. Bunyan remarked from his own deep experience, Oh, the starting holes that the heart hath in time of prayer. None knows how many byways the heart hath and back lanes to slip away from the presence of God. Oh, I can't tell you the number of times I sit down to pray sometimes and I'm praying and, and, and my thoughts slip away and they sneak off on the, this way and all of a sudden they're back over here and, you know, I was planning to stay here and pretty soon I've settled myself over here. And, you know, I've learned over time as I've gotten older to just ask God to forgive me and ask him to help me and to not let that discourage me from staying right there with him and seeking him and doing everything I can to try to bring this and this into alignment with him. And sometimes that means I just have to go get a psalm and just read scripture to get myself refocused, to get the bumpers up on the mind of my life so that I can roll down the lane. So don't be discouraged. Take heart. The way to do a thing is to do it. Be persistent in it, and God will reward the effort. If we are living the new creational life, expect the opportunity to share Christ. So, I'm going to give you some verses to take down. You can go look them up on your own. I'm going to read through it and I'll come back to verses. If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, 31. If we walk uprightly, Psalm 84, 11. 
If you do not regard iniquity in your heart, Psalm 66, 18. If you continue to wait patiently, Psalm 37, 7. And if you believe in God, Hebrews eleven six. Answers will surely come. It says, we need to be a believer. The Lord does not hold, withhold things from those who walk uprightly. It says, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not listen. It says, if we're still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, the Lord prospers his way. And lastly, and without faith, it is possible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, this week, I hope that you would be spurred for prayer. And if your prayer life is vibrant, I hope it is maintained. And I hope it continues to flourish. So two final thoughts. This week, let's find ourselves steadfastly devoted to prayer. And secondly, let us examine our walk to ensure that nothing in it is detracting from the opportunities to impact unbelievers by sharing the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious God, coming before you is something that we all want to do. Living in such a way that is noticeable that you are in charge of us and that we are excited and willingly following you is something we all want to do. So I just pray that we would be encouraged to do that this week. Sometimes we don't. And so I would ask that you would help us to find forgiveness and healing for these areas where maybe we have failed. And let us walk confidently in you, knowing that you have said that if we are faithful, to confess those sins, you will forgive us of them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.